Thank you, Micah. I don't know if my microphone's on yet or not. Testing one, two. Do you all hear me on the mic? No? Okay, some of you do. Uh, well, I guess I'm just going to be anchored here this morning. That's uh, probably for the best. So some of you came here this morning expecting not to hear from me uh, because we were supposed to have uh, the campus ministry from OSU come join us. Uh, Josh has COVID. Uh, called me about 10 o'clock yesterday and shared that uh, they weren't going to be able to be with us uh, as he's the only licensed driver for their van. Uh, they, they, you know, he described it as it would take an act of God to get the college students from Corvallis to there. And I said, well, maybe we could still work that out. God has been known to, you know, act. Um, that said, uh, this morning we're, we're going to push our OSU visit uh, a couple of weeks, maybe until April, uh, and we're going to move right on with the sermon series we're in the midst of. Um, I want to start, though, before that by reminding you of just a couple of things. First of all, as all of you hopefully know, we're going to have a special contribution next week. Next Sunday, March 3rd, we're having a special contribution to help raise money for a well in Africa. Uh, our goal is to raise $5,000 as a special contribution on a single Sunday. I told you last week that we had a member of our church who has offered to match us up to the full $5,000, which would mean, if you can do the math, $5,000 builds one well, $10,000 builds two wells. And so we have the opportunity to potentially not just build one well, but to build two wells, to change a life, to change many lives uh, in, in ways that we could never hope or imagine to fully comprehend and understand. And so I'm encouraging you next week, come prepared to give above and beyond what you normally give. At the beginning of service, we're going to sing a couple of songs, then we're gonna pass the trays, which we haven't done in a long time, uh, because this is special, and we wanna do something a little different than we would normally do. So we'll pass the trays, and hopefully by the end of service, we can let you know how much we raised for this offering. I also wanna let you know that there's gonna be a, a rummage sale happening. There are a number of members of our congregation that have said, we got a lot of stuff we don't need. We could sell it and give the proceeds towards this special offering. That's very much in keeping with what the book of Acts describes the early church doing to raise money for the needs of the church, to care for the poor, to care for the widow, to care for the sick, to care for the orphan. And so I want to encourage you, be thinking of uh, potentially going and, and buying some of your brothers and sisters merchandise with the intention of supporting those who are in need. Uh, there are a lot of creative ways that we can be giving to accomplish this, and it's something that we can do together that not many of us could do on our own. That's part of being a family, is that God has given us the ability to do things together that on our own we couldn't do. In fact, that's the reason God created community, right? Adam needed a helper, and there was no helper suitable for him, so God made a helper suitable for him. And together, they could do what Adam alone could not do. So that's announcement number one. Announcement number two, uh, we're getting ready for a new set of classes uh, starting next week, and because I'm the preacher, I get to plug my own class a little extra. Um, there will be a special announcement about classes following this, but I wanna tell you that I think marriage is essential, that healthy marriages are a reflection of a healthy church. Now, that doesn't mean every marriage in every church is healthy all the time. In fact, you know, just like an individual, our mental health is on a spectrum. Sometimes we're very mentally healthy, and sometimes we're just moderately mentally healthy. Sometimes our marriages are very healthy. Sometimes they're just moderately healthy. Sometimes they're less than healthy. 
That's why we, we seek help. That's why we seek uh, uh, counsel. That's why we spend time focusing on the areas in which we are weak. And so I'm encouraging everyone that is interested in being married, everyone who is married, everyone who's not so sure that they're ever gonna wanna be married, uh, everyone who thinks maybe I've been married, I lost my spouse, and maybe I wanna be married again. Join us for this class. Also, if everything is just going dandy for you, show up because you've got some wisdom the rest of us might need, okay? Uh, this is not just a, oh, we're on the rocks and I'm really worried about our marriage kind of class. This is a, how do we learn from one another how to be better spouses, better parents together, better members of our community as a couple. And so uh, starting next week in room 11, unless we outgrow room 11, uh, we're gonna have a class on marriage and it'll run an entire quarter. All right, infomercial over, let's get on to the sermon. We've been going through this series on how Jesus reacts to and interacts with groups of people in his society. And this morning, I want to tell you that we're, we're going to deal with maybe the toughest group of all. You know, most of us would sit down and we'd say, yeah, I think Christians should be for women and children. I think Christians should be for the slave and the poor. I think Christians should be for the sinners and the tax collectors. I think that Christians should very much be for the, the individuals in our society who are homeless. Those are all things that we should be for. But sometimes, I think while we'd say we should be for our enemies, we don't actually feel that way. You know, this last week I was just, as I often do, going through like Christian memes, like that's all I follow on Instagram at this point, uh, which makes me both a, a minister and a nerd at the same time, but I know Kyle does the same thing. He's got like TikToks from, from preachers all over the place and uh, sends them to me. And so I was going through one of my favorite uh, Christian meme feeds, and there's a little cartoon, and you've all heard the poem, uh, Footprints, right? The Jesus, why, where, where are the other set of footprints? Why is there only one set here? And Jesus says, well, that's where I carried you, right? And we all get tears in our eyes, and oh, how beautiful, wonderful. The second panel of the comic was, yes, Lord, but what is that deep trench through the sand? And Jesus responds, that was where I dragged you kicking and screaming. <laughs> and I feel like when we're talking about our enemies and loving our enemies, that's oftentimes where Jesus has to grab us by our collar and just drag us along with him because we like the sound of it. Love your enemies. Yeah, we should love everybody. But we don't actually like what love your enemies means. Because if we open up the Bible, this is such a common theme within Scripture, to love our enemies. And yet, the actions that look like loving our enemies are not much like we think of our response to our enemies today. A few years ago, uh, I had this interesting revelation. Um, I was responsible for coordinating children's ministry at the Walnut Creek Church of Christ. That was like job number two in my 50 jobs that I had. And Lorenda was my coworker in that. The two of us were responsible for it. And, and the first several months that we were there, we were kind of transitioning and building a plan and looking to see what it would be in a few months. And we had this startling revelation. You know, Micah comes up to us after class and we ask him, what did you learn in Bible time today? And he told us, well, we learned that Jesus loves our enemies, that he wants us to love our enemies because they'd been studying through the Sermon on the Mount. 
And then we asked him, okay, so that's what you learned in Bible time. What did you learn in Bible class? And he said, well, God wants us to kill our enemies. <laughs> because they were studying through the book of Joshua. And, uh, you know, it was interesting to, to hear that tension and strain, because oftentimes when we read the Bible, we, we forget that all of it's connected. And how does it look like love to your enemies to respond to them the way that God calls them to respond to the Canaanites? This is a big question. It's difficult sometimes for us to wrap our minds around, but we're actually, we're not just going to do one sermon on this. In fact, I think understanding Easter, understanding the resurrection, understanding the mission of Christ on the cross and in his triumph over death requires us to understand what loving our enemies looks like. And so as we transition out of this series on how Jesus responds to individual groups of people, we're going to move into a series that is just on loving our enemies. And this gets to be the first one. We have right at the, the front of Jesus's teaching within the, the book of Matthew, this statement. Now it's, it's several you know, paragraphs into his lesson, but I challenge you, read the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount and see how it, how it constantly relates back to this idea of loving your enemies. Here, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, Jesus does something here because every other time he says, you have heard that it was said, he quotes an Old Testament passage, a passage that probably would have been a proof text for the teachers of his time. But if you look in your Bibles, and you look at what's being quoted here and what's cross-referenced and goes back to, this is not what the particular passage in Leviticus says. Instead, this is the teaching of the, the teachers of Israel at the time of Jesus. Now, they get part of it right. Love your neighbor. But if you go and you find this passage in the book of Leviticus, there is nothing in there about hating your enemy. Which means Jesus is saying, you've heard some people teach a couple of things about, you know, what God wants for us and our neighbors, and then they've extrapolated beyond that to the people that don't live right next door to you, to the people who aren't your countrymen, to the people who aren't your brothers and sisters. Those people that you call your enemies. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Have you ever pulled that last verse out before and reflected on what that means? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, on its own, this is a really intimidating passage because I am not God. That some of you are thinking, I'm glad you understand that. None of us in this room 
have the capacity in and of ourselves to be perfect. We've proven that. In fact, that's one of the big running themes in Scripture is that we have failed to live up to what God expects of us. And yet Jesus asks us to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And there's the context, we've just read the context, in our relationship with others, in the way that we show love to others, be perfect. And he's given us an image of what that looks like. For the evil and the good, God sends the reins. For the just and the unjust, he cares for them alike. His love is unending for everyone. Of course, that means that what it looks like for God to love people oftentimes is dependent on their disposition towards him and not his disposition towards them. God's love is perfect. God's love is for everyone. That's a part of the expression of the gospel, that Christ came to die for all. Not because everyone would accept him, but because God desperately wanted for everyone to accept him. God's love was such that he died for each of us, and he died for all of us. There's a distinction there, and I don't know if we always fully comprehend that. God died for all of humanity, but he died for each of us as well. Wrap your mind around that for just a moment here. That's what the perfect love of God looks like, and Christ is calling us in this passage to love perfectly the way that God has loved us perfectly. And he begins by telling us love does not look like caring about the children in your home, but not the children across the street. Love does not look like loving your brother that you sit around the dinner table with on Thanksgiving and make smiley faces at, but hating the person that lives across town who's been speaking bad about you for years. Love does not look like going into a coffee shop and being polite to the person who's in front of you in line because they've forgotten what they were going to order, and now they're taking five or six minutes. That might be patience, but that's not love, especially when we then turn around and are tremendously impatient unloving towards the people we don't encounter on a regular basis. Perfect love is the opposite of enmity. In fact, there is at no point in time in the scripture where Jesus calls us to make enemies. And he's constantly calling us to love others. Now, there are times that Jesus acknowledges we have enemies. This is truth. This is something that we cannot escape. Enemies exist. They are a thing. Nobody in this room would be surprised to know that there are people that are against them. We've all experienced it before. We've had people in our own homes who have been against us. We have had bosses who have been against us. We've had co-workers that have been against us. We've had people that we've only met for five minutes who just don't like us and have fixed their mind on making our lives miserable. 
There are like entire parts of the government that are staffed by these people. <laughs> I didn't think I was gonna get an amen on that, but okay. This is why I like having Shirley around. So, I wanna tell you this morning that there are people in this world that do have a disposition toward you that is less than stellar. And you can think of who those people are. You can fix your mind on an individual who has decided that they are your enemy. And there are people in this world that we have never met that have decided they are our enemies. And Christ calls us to love them the way that we are called to love our brothers, the way that we are called to love our children, the way that we are called to love God himself. So why is it so difficult for us to love our enemies? What does that look like? See, it's clear to me that it wasn't just this one time that Jesus teaches and the apostles were like, well, that's a really nice idea. We're not going to dwell on it too long because, you know, there's some deep ramifications here. When we look at the rest of the New Testament, peace is everywhere. You know, last week I told you that homelessness is almost nowhere in the Old Testament. It's barely there in the New Testament. In fact, one of the few times the word homeless is used is Paul describing himself and his situation as he's on his missionary journeys. But peace is everywhere. It resounds through the New Testament. And Paul says this, he says, Do not repay anyone for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, if it is possible. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul's idea of what peace or loving our enemies looks like is that if it's in our hands at all, if we have the choice about whether or not peace exists between us and another person, we must live at peace with them. But a lot of times we encounter an individual who has placed peace in our hands and we've denied them peace. We've faced individuals who ask us for forgiveness and we decline and we hold a grudge and we cut them off and we tell them that there is no room for relationship with them. But I want to tell you this morning, as much as peace is focused on in the New Testament, we are also called to be righteous people. And righteousness sometimes in our mind looks like, you know, showing up on Sunday, doing the right thing during our worship services, worshiping in spirit and in truth, raising our hands at the appropriate times, but not too often because we don't want to be holy rollers. At the same time, making sure that we've dressed appropriately, but not too appropriately because we don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. Making sure that we quote the correct Bible passages, but not the ones that are going to put people out of joint a little bit. We want to make sure that we look really good. But you know what? None of that is righteousness by biblical definition definition. Righteousness is not about the particulars of our outward practice of our faith in ways that other people can observe and see and say, that guy looks righteous and holy. Righteousness is about the effect of relationship 
between yourself and another person. When we are righteous in the eyes of God, we have a right relationship with him. When we are righteous toward another person, we have a right relationship with them. And if we continue to be unloving, unkind, looking for enmity between ourselves and others, we can't possibly be righteous. Jesus says, if you have any problem with your brother, ought is the, the, I think, King James Version, if you have ought with your brother, make it right before right with him before you offer your gift. Set your gift down at the altar, go and make right with your brother, and then come back, and then you're in a correct position to worship God, to give to God an offering. We have a whole sermon on how sometimes our brothers are our enemies, but God's desire is for us to turn enemies into our brothers. I'm not going to say any more about it because I have to be able to preach that in a few weeks. So moving on here, I want you to focus on this idea right here. Paul says essentially that peace, a lack of enmity, love toward our neighbor is in our hands. And if it's not in our hands, it doesn't exempt us because he says, in as far as it's up to you. In as far as it's up to you. So there's not a point at which we get to say, well, you know, all the cards are off the table now because he's chosen to be my enemy. I don't bear him any responsibility at this point. No matter how negatively inclined towards you someone might be, there are still ways to make peace with them. In as far as it depends on you. I think some of us, at the first sign of enmity, at the first sign of relational difficulty, at the first sign of trouble in a friendship, a relationship, a coworker situation, we just give up. Well, this guy is never going to be my friend. I'm done with him. The best thing I can possibly do is just never speak to him again. Indifference is not an option. You greet only your brothers? Isn't that basically what the sinners, tax collectors, the Gentiles do? How does that make you righteous? You greet only the people that like you? You only interact with the people that it's easy to interact with? You seek peace only with the people who are easy to be peaceful peaceful toward? How does that make you any different than anyone else. How are you salt of the earth if you're just dirt? I think this is a question we really have to contemplate for ourselves. That's why we're dedicating most of a month to it. What does it look like for us to be peacemakers, to love our enemies? The writer of Hebrews says this, therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is what we are called to. And the writer of Hebrews recognizes We are not fit for the task. 
It's a humbling thing to read in Scripture where we're told we are weak. Our, our drooping hands, our weak knees. You can't even walk. You can't even lift your arms. And yet I'm asking you to make peace with everyone. There is no holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I want you to think about this for just a moment this morning. And I want to ask you, who are you too weak to make peace with? Who have you struggled for years to have right relationship with? Who in your life have you cut out or cut off because you just don't have the energy to love them well? Paul calls us to make peace with everyone in as much as it's up to us. The writer of Hebrews says, look, I know how weak you are. Strive for peace anyway. Lift up your arms. Get your knees underneath you. Walk. And Jesus tells us, no matter how easy it is to love someone, you have to love the even more difficult person as well. I have people in my life that I owe a tremendous apology to because I have been a harborer of grudges, because I have cut off contact, because I just don't have the patience for them anymore. People that I've stopped interacting with and talking to because, you know what, it's just easier to pretend like they don't exist than it is to love them. And that's wrong. Because Christ has called me to love them anyway. And it's really hard to love someone without interacting with them. So this morning, I'd, I don't have all the solutions. I think over the next several weeks, we're going to have some, some pretty significant breakthroughs as a congregation in what it looks like to love our neighbors well. I don't have the time to preach five sermons this morning. I've already preached two. But I want to encourage you to be praying this week and next week especially about whoever's mind image has been in your mind this morning whatever person you have failed to make peace with whatever enemy you failed to love pray for god to speak to you in the coming weeks about how to approach them and to mend the relationship that you have with them because this is central to the gospel. Paul tells us that we have been made ministers of reconciliation, that we, this is the ministry we've inherited from Christ to reconcile, to bring together two things that have been taken apart, to line things up alongside one another and say, you belong together. You are reconciled one to another, not just to reconcile people to God, which is the greatest gift we can give to them, but to reconcile people to people one to another 
And in the church, that looks like the unity that we have in our faith in Christ. For those outside the church, it looks like bringing them a step closer to lifting them up, even with our weak arms. I want to ask you to pray with me this morning. Our Father in heaven, you have loved us deeply. While we were still your enemies, while we were still at war with you, while we were still putting ourselves in a place that was was negatively disposed to the God of all creation, you sent your Son to die for us, to change our entire relationship with you. You have shown us what love looks like in the fullness of who Jesus is. And while we've taken a lot of the other gifts that you've offered us so gratefully, so joyfully, so happily, integrated them into our lives and said, yes, Lord, this is what we want, sometimes we look at the love that you call us to have toward our enemies and we say, yeah, but not that. So, Father, as we become people who are formed in the shape of Christ, help us to take on the same kind of love that he had for us, that while we were his enemies, he laid down his life for us. Father, we pray for hearts that are changed and shaped, remade, created new, And Father, if you have to do it while we're kicking and screaming, we pray that you do. But I pray, Father, that each one of us would simply walk alongside our Savior. That we would see where he goes and we would follow. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if you are looking to reconcile with somebody and you need someone to walk alongside you while you do that, if you need to be reconciled to God through baptism, participation in the life, death, resurrection, and new life that Jesus offers. We want to offer that to you as well. If you just need prayer because things are not going well, or you want to praise God because things are going great, we have opportunities for that to happen this morning. I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. I would pray with you. I'd visit with you, maybe provide you some counsel if that's what you need. Our elders are here this morning, and they'd be happy to do the same. And we've got some ladies that are sitting in this room that have Uh, promised that they'd be there if you need that. And so I'm going to invite you to consider that as we stand and as we sing.